Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. Let me call our attention to the book of Colossians this morning. Colossians chapter number 3. We're going to read one verse of Scripture. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he is instructing them to seek things that are above. He's giving them instructions in this portion of Scripture and talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. The old man, once we have been born again, the old man is dead. Uh, We may drag his carcass around with us, but the old man is dead. Sin hath no more dominion over us. It doesn't control us. But we give in to those appetites every so often if we're not careful. But Paul is giving them instructions, and within these instructions on putting on the new man, Paul mentions a subject or deals with a subject matter in verse number 16. We'll read this verse of Scripture this morning. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by Him. The subject matter that we're dealing with this morning, in fact, this is the last of our series that we're dealing with on the ordinary means of God's grace. Uh, There are the means by which God demonstrates His grace to us as individuals, as a corporate congregation, they are innumerable. God delivers His grace to us, but there are specific things that are matters and means of grace by which God, that God gives us regularly. Things that we experience every time we come together. And one of those means of grace is the Word of God. It is the Word of God that demonstrates and shows us and enlightens us to God's grace. Well, part of the word is the sung word, us singing the songs together, us doing as Ricky did this morning. And by the way, he may say he doesn't have much of a singing voice, and maybe the melody may not be able to be carried, but it sounded pretty good of a pretty good voice when he was reading through the Psalms this morning, don't you agree? (laughs) I I appreciate the voice 
of Brother Ricky and his reading the Psalms. But as we go through this and understand that singing is something that God instructs us to do. We're instructed to do it. And we're going we're gonna to consider this morning the fact of singing as a means of God's grace to us as a corporate congregation and even as individuals. We, we cannot sit here this morning and if we took part in any way of the singing, you cannot sit here and tell me that that singing did not do something for you, to you, and in you. If you sang those songs as unto the Lord, they meant something. Those words were not just words. Uh, those songs did something for us. That is God's grace being demonstrated to you. When we, when we sang as we sang this morning, and we sang those words, and you reminisced those words as you were singing, it did something in your heart. It was God's grace overflowing in your heart by those words that we sang. So if, if we're going to say that singing is a means of God's grace, there's some things that we need to understand as we call it a means of God's grace. What is a means of God's grace anyway? We looked at this at the very beginning when we began this series on the means of grace. The explanation of the means of grace in a Reformed context is that it traditionally it means that grace is included in prayer, in the Word, in the Lord's Supper, and in baptism. But singing is understood to be a means of God's grace in that singing is a ministry of the Word. What did we sing this morning? Did we not sing the truths of the Word? Those songs were not written just as someone th haphazardly throwing words together. The songs that we sang this morning were filled, and we mention this very often, were filled with doctrine. They were filled with the Word of God. And if the Word of God is a definite means of God's grace, and it is, you and I would not know the grace of God without the Word. If the Word is a means of God's grace and our singing what we sing and singing those doctrines, singing those truths, finding those truths from the Word of God, then in turn singing becomes part of that means of grace by which we hear and understand and reminisce the Word of God in our lives. The, there is a biblical foundation for singing. In fact, we see it in this passage of Scripture. Paul instructs the church at Colossae, instructs them 
in verse number 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How are we to do that? He said, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with what? Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. God has allowed us a method or a mode by which we can reminisce the grace of God. According to Paul, the role of singing in letting, is letting the Word of God dwell in us richly. It's, it's reminiscing those things that we know to be truths from the Word of God. One writer put it this way, The focus of singing is not so much on, the, on our attitude toward God as we sing, but on our awareness of God's attitude toward us. If we understand the songs that we sing, we're not singing those understanding our attitude toward God, but we're singing those and we're reminiscing those things, understanding God's attitude toward us. That's what we come together for this morning. We come together to find out and to understand our standing in the grace of God. The writer that I just mentioned went on to say, he said, it is our standing in grace that makes such singing come from our heart. If we sing from our heart, if we truly are singing that from our heart, it is because we have recognized God's attitude toward us. And we have recognized that God is acceptance of us. We understand that that acceptance is not because of what I've done. It's not because of what checklist I've taken care of this week. But my acceptance before the Father rests solely in what? Jesus Christ and Him alone. My standing before God is not because I checked this box or I checked that box or I did this thing or I did that thing or I didn't do this thing or I didn't do that thing. My standing before God rests solely in Christ and in Christ alone. And the songs that we sing and that we sing with purpose remind us of that standing and remind us of that standing being in Christ and in Christ alone. Just as prayer is a a preparation, a petition, and and a praise of God for His grace, singing means it is a means of our expressing and internalizing God's grace for us. When we sing, when we were sitting here singing this morning, my, my mind and my heart is reminiscing God's love for me. It wasn't, it wasn't talking to me about my walk with God. It was talking about God and His graciousness toward me. 
And the more that I'm reminded of that, the more it draws me to Him. We, we've said this over and over again. I'm going to say it again this morning. How do we love God? As a child of God, how do we love Him? How are we able to love Him? We love Him, what? Because He first loved us. You want to love God more? Understand His love for you more. And the more that you understand His love for you and the more you reminisce His love for you in your life, the more it draws you to want to love Him. We did that in singing this morning. My heart was drawn to love God. Why? Because the songs we sang demonstrated God's love for me. It demonstrated to me God's grace. It showed to me God's grace. And as it showed to me God's grace, it drew my heart to love Him and to love Him more. Why do we sing? Singing is expressly commanded by God. The Bible has over 400 indirect references to singing and at least 50 direct references and commands to sing. Just a few this morning. Psalm 149. It's, it's, not, it's not odd that many of these verses are found in Psalms. Why? Because that's the songbook. Psalm 149, sing a new song to the Lord. Psalm 57 and verse number 9, I will sing praises to you among the nation. Psalm 47 and verse number 6, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. I think God tells us to sing. Psalm 96 and verse number 1, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. There are over 400 indirect, but there are 50 that are direct commands for us to sing. Why does God want us to sing? God wants us to sing so that we can reminisce those things that He's done for us. God wants us to remember those things and sing these songs and sing the songs that are, are full of doctrine, sing these songs that are, that are vibrant in the grace of God so that we're reminded of His grace for us. Not, not only is singing... Uh, commandedly or expressly commanded by God, singing is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 18 and 19 says this, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What is the filled with the Spirit? He tells us, singing unto, yourself, unto yourselves. What is he talking about singing unto ourselves? He's talking about addressing one another. How do we address one another? In singing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, just like he said in the book of Colossians. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. How do you make melody in your heart to the Lord? You do it by singing. 
A spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. Why? Because they're reminded over and over of the things of God. They're reminiscing those things. Nothing is more indicative of a fulfilled life than a contented soul or of a happy heart than an expression of a song. What do you do when you're happy? Most of the time, what do you do when you're just overjoyed in happiness? You sing. You don't always, not every time you sing do you have to sing a spiritual song. But when you're overjoyed spiritually, what do you sing? Spiritual songs. You may be happy about the love your spouse has for you. What are you going to sing? You're going to sing a love song. You may, you may be happy of uh, this thing or that thing, but when you're happy about what God has done for you, you're going to sing the songs that ex- exhibit and express what God has done for you. Why? Because it, it's just automatic. It just comes out. Whether or not you're like myself and Brother Ricky and can't, carry a tune in a bucket or you can't carry a melody I can I can do pretty well if I have somebody standing beside of me but if I'm by myself don't ask me don't ask me to lead you in music because I'm going to lead you astray <laughs> but as long as you're singing I can sing along with you most of the time I might knock you off tune every once in a while but we can sing together And we can express the praises of God because of what He's done for us. Singing is wrought by the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God bubbling up things in your heart and causing you to reminisce the grace of God. I don't know whether you've caught on to it yet or not. Why does God have a scene? So we reminisce the grace of God. So we remember the grace of God. God himself sings among his people. Jeffrey, can you check the temperature, please? (laughs) God himself sings among his people. Why does God so often tell us to not just simply praise him, but to sing praises unto him? Why not just pray and preach? Why, why don't we just come together and just pray and preach? Because it, 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 it puts that joy in our heart. It solidifies that joy in our heart. Why sing? Why are God's people throughout history always singing? Because they're joyful. Why words and music and not just words alone? Why, why don't we just, the songs that we sing, why don't we just read them to each other? They don't mean as much. It's when we add that, that singing to that, add that tune to it, that it becomes something that, that causes joy in our heart. Why does God want us to sing? One reason is because God sings himself. You say, where do you find that? I'm glad you asked. 
Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. God exalts over his people with loud singing. If God himself sings among his people, so should we. If that's what God does enjoy in with his people, then so should we. What what is what is it that we're told that when they gathered around the throne in the book of the Revelation and they what sang a new song? What was that song? Glory, glory, glory. Holy, holy, holy. Singing uses words to de- demonstrate and express unity. It's through congregational singing together that our minds and our hearts are drawn into unity. When you walked in this morning, when you first walked in the door, you weren't thinking the same thing I was thinking. When I walked in the door, I wasn't thinking the same thing you were thinking. I didn't know what you were thinking and you didn't know what I was thinking and it is probably good that we didn't know what each other was thinking. But when we began to sing, what did it do? It drew us all together in unity around one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. It drew us together in unity. We need congregational singing. We need congregational worship. That congregational singing serves as words that demonstrate and express our unity. People sing together in the strangest places. Do they not? People sing together in the strangest places. They sing at sporting events. Fans sing enthusiastically at their desire to crush an opponent at a ball game or whatever it may be. People sing at New Year's Eve parties. They sing at Christmas time. They sing at rock concerts. They sing at weddings. They sing at even funerals. While these events are not equally significant, something familiar happens when we sing together as a congregation. Why? Because we're centering our minds and our thoughts upon one thing. The grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more effective than just reciting and shouting words. I could, I could, we could sit here and we could, <laughs> I'm not saying that we do it, but what if we come in here next Sunday and all we do is we read the words to the song off the screens. We just read them. It's not going to have the same effect. It's that singing that raises that joy. It's that that when the Spirit of God presents them in our hearts and we see that truth. I don't know whether you've noticed, but there are times when we come in here and we sing the songs of Zion. We sing these songs that are packed with doctrine. And there are people that are taking off their glasses and they're wiping their eyes. 
People that do not have glasses don't have to take the glasses off. That's one step they get to skip. But they still are found wiping their eyes. Why? Because their hearts are joyed because they are seeing the truths of the Word of God. They're seeing the truths of the promises of God. And they're seeing that through singing. Our singing tends to bind us together. Have you ever been somewhere and somebody starts singing something and then another one joins in and another one joins in and before long everybody's singing the same thing? It draws into unity. It's more effective than just simply reciting or shouting out words of, in unison. Not to say that those things are wrong because they're not. But when we sing those things, it brings unity. Singing is clearly commanded in the assembly of other Christians. It, again, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 19, speaking unto yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart unto the Lord. Our text verse this morning, Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. What are we doing when we're singing? If those songs are full of doctrine, we are teaching and admonishing one another. Music teaches us things that we will remember. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 19 through 22, God himself commanded Moses something. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse number 19, God commanded Moses to do this. He said, Now therefore, write ye this song for you, and teach it the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song might be a witness for me against the children of Israel. For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swear unto their fathers that floweth with milk and honey, and they shall have eaten and be filled themselves and waxen fat, then will they turn unto other gods and serve them and provoke me and break my covenant. And it shall come to pass when many evil and troubles are befallen them that this song, shall testify against them as a witness. For it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed. For I know their imagination which they do go about. Even now before I have brought them into the land which I swear, Moses therefore wrote this song that same day and taught the children of Israel. Why did God Give them that song. He gave them that song for them to remember his promises. He mentioned negatively in this passage of scripture that as they learned that song and as they remembered the promises of God, when they strayed from those promises, God, that song would be a reminder that they had strayed from those promises. 
It wasn't enough that God revealed the words to Moses and that Moses give them to the people. God wanted them to sing them. Why did God want them to sing them? To get it into their mouths and into their hearts so they would not forget. What is easier for you to remember? The next statement that I'm going to make to you or the song that we sang this morning? It's a whole lot easier for us to remember those songs. That's the reason that the songs need to be packed with gospel truth so that we reminisce those things in our hearts. God did that so they would remember. Singing is a way of locking things into our brains. There are studies, and Miss Carolyn can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there are studies that Alzheimer's and dementia patients, when they can't remember anything else, they can still remember a song. You start them singing, they'll finish the song. Why? Because God has so centered that place in our hearts and in our minds that we do not forget them. I may forget a lot of things. I may, I may end up down the road forgetting my own name. But God has given us a place that is protected in our lives that we don't forget those things we sing. That is the reason we should sing the truths of God. How do we understand singing? He tells us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. Singing is a ministry of the word of God. There is a scriptural basis for singing. We've read it. He tells us here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing us. It is the ministry of the word in song in our life. That is what makes it a means of grace. <laughs> Two doors down, singing and dancing and having a party, that's not means of God's grace. But come thou fount, amazing grace, those songs are a means of God's grace. That singing is a means of God's grace. That's the reason we should often remind ourselves and take part in those kinds of songs. There's a scriptural concern in singing. If the main concern of singing is letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, then our singing cannot be primarily concerned about a melody. It, it's not about the beat. <laughs> it's not about the beat that gets to the feet. It is about the words that we find in those songs. The melody makes them easier for us to remember them 
but it's the words that we speak in those songs that are so crucial. It it must be letting the word of God, the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Therefore, it is the word that is the primary concern in singing. There's a spiritual practice in singing. We need to understand the scriptural concern that affects what we sing. In church, we don't just sing songs because we like the melody. We're not just singing songs because we like the tune to them. We're singing them because the content that they have. The content is primary. The content is necessary. This is the reason we must purposely select the songs we sing. That's the reason that not only we must, that's the reason at Gospel Way we do purposely select the songs we sing. We purposely select them because they are chocked full of gospel truths. They're they're full of the grace of God. There are many songs that have a great melody, but when you explain the words, the words don't say much. Don't throw anything at me, but Southern Gospel, just don't cut it. When When you've learned to have an appetite of good doctrinal sound music, it just don't hold it. It don't hold the glitz and the glamour that maybe at one time did. Why? Because there's, it's all fluff. That it's, it's almost like you making a meal off of cheese puffs. It's just fluffed up nothing. I mean, how many of us want a whole meal of marshmallows puffed up air? I mean, you might want a marshmallow in your s'mores every once in a while. I don't even like them in there, but you might want that. But I don't want a bunch of marshmallows. I want some good, sound food in the songs that we sing. There's a purpose. There's a reason. Understanding the spiritual concern and the effects how we discern what we sing. We must ask these questions. If we're gonna if we're gonna sing the songs that we should sing, then we've got to ask these questions. What does the song say? Is it biblical? Is it spiritually helpful in our life? Is the is it style driven or content driven? And will it be helpful in our worship of Christ? I'm not sitting here telling you all of these things to tell you that this is the only music you can ever listen to. That's not what I'm doing. I'm telling you that for us to come together and to speak to ourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, these are the things that we're speaking unto ourselves congregationally and corporately as we're speaking unto ourselves in these things. These are things that must be considered. What does it say? Is it biblical? Is it spiritually helpful? Why do, or, or, or why is the song needed? 
Is it style-driven or content-driven? Will it help us in our worship of God? There is a scriptural reflection on singing in the church. Reggie King made this statement, or Reggie Kidd, I'm sorry, Reggie Kidd (laughs) made this statement. A theology that cannot be sung is not worth having either. Authentic Christian faith is not merely believed, nor is it merely acted upon. It is sung with utter joy sometimes, in uncontrolled tears sometimes, but it is sung. You know, you know definite truths about God? You're going to sing them. At some point or time, you're going to sing them. You're more likely to remember the words of a song that you sang than remember the words of a message that's been preached to you. Not to say that preaching's not necessary because it is. That is a means of God's grace. But those songs are necessary also. We need to sing corporately. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 16 also encourages us to sing corporately. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you. That word you, if you studied that word, you're going to find out that word means what I talked about last week. It means y'all. Everybody. And in fact, it means all y'all. It's everybody. Vody Balkum would say it this way, it's everybody. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it includes all of us. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly, teaching and admonishing one another. He's, he's talking about corporately that we are to teach and admonish one another in these songs. It also emphasizes singing in a public as a public activity in a corporate means of grace. We're, what are we doing when we're singing to each other? Are, do we come in just to sing to ourselves? No. Do we come in just to sing to God? No. I am encouraged when I hear you singing. That's the reason it is important. You, you say, that don't mean much to me. It may not mean much to you, but sing anyway because it might mean something to your neighbor. That's the reason we all should be singing. Singing is an outflowing of the grace of God's Word in the lives of God's people and particularly to one another. This is where we understand the corporate idea of fellowshipping with the saints. We gather together around a meal every other month. We get together and have that meal together. and We understand that and that's a time of fellowship. But our time of fellowship is singing around the songs of Zion. When we come together and we sing the same thing about the same God who has shown us the same grace. Corporate singing is ministering to one another. Singing then is one aspect of the corporate ministry and the corporate ministry of the grace of God. 
in a Sunday service, you could be tempted to think that the singing is about you and God. But it's not just about you and God. It's about you and your neighbor. We're reminding each other of the grace of God. The reason that you should sing is not just to stir your own heart. And not just to stir your own heart toward God, but to stir others' hearts toward God. The songwriter Matt Cosper writes it this way, One way the Word dwells in you richly among us is by our teaching and admonishing one one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing itself is a creational gift which formally affects our lives. When people sing together, they literally unite their breath. They unite their words. In certain situations, they unite their physical gestures, maybe to the point of clapping or raising their hands. But they're uniting together. How, what are they uniting together for? That the grace of God be demonstrated. You come to corporate worship on Sundays to be sung to but to sing to others also. What is the effect of corporate singing? Corporate singing is not a time to hear the band. It's not a time to only listen to good singers. There you go, Brother Ricky. It's time for all of us to sing. It's time to join our voices together and to join our hearts together around the grace of God. Singing is one of the corporate activities of the church where, a keep, where people can be exposed to God. Even unbelievers can be exposed to God through the singing. We need to sing different types of songs. What are we to sing? Colossians gives us three categories, but those aren't the only three categories. So many times we try to take those three categories and make that all of it. There are psalms which are meant to be sung. There are hymns. When Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord, this implies that we must be singing songs in light of Christ and the gospel that is revealed, the grace that is revealed in the gospel. There are spiritual songs. These Different types of songs should include the content, the mood, and the expression of the song. Dr. Carl Truman wrote this way, Many popular Christian songs don't express the kinds of lamentations you sometimes see in Scripture and that believers can certainly experience. The Psalms are sometimes very raw and honest. Believers need these types of songs in their lives. Think of the song, It Is Well. How many times have we been in a time of desperation in our life and we've heard the song, It Is Well, and it spoke to our hearts. That's the grace of God being demonstrated unto us. 
The idea of different types of songs can also impact the style of those songs. Sometimes we struggle with the idea that style is attuned to culture or cultural preferences and traditions. But you cannot get away from this truth. Songs in the southeast of the United States are not going to sound like the songs in Europe and Asia. They're just not. Why? Because those songs are sang in those cultures, reaching those people and demonstrating to them the grace of God. We may not understand them, but they do. Liturgy is necessary. Liturgy is just a means of the order of the service, if you understand what it means. Christian churches for centuries have often practiced a liturgy that follows certain orders, such as adoration, beginning with praise to God, confession, confession our sins and confessing the need for God, assurance of pardon, dealing with the promise of the gospel objectively as to what God has done to forgive us of our sins, commitment, exhortation to live lives pleasing unto God. This order can be reflected and practiced in songs that we sing. We should receive the gospel in many ways when we come together. We need to so sing songs with grace in our hearts. It's what Paul's telling them. We need to sing them with grace in our hearts. Understanding the grace of God. Sing motivated by the grace that we find in the gospel. Grace and the gospel disappears from our minds all the time. And we need to be reminded of the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we do that? By singing together. That's one reason we need to sing. To have the grace of God appear unto us through those songs. To remind ourselves of the goodness and the loving kindness that God has appointed toward us then we need to meditate on those songs that we sing together. At great moments of redemption, God's people sang. I'll give you this in conclusion. When the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea and reached the other side, what did they do? They sang. When God did great things for David, what did David do? He sang. When God did great things for Hannah, what did Hannah do? She sang. When God did great things for Mary, what did Mary do? She sang. When God did great things for Zechariah, what did he do? He sang. When God does great things for us, what should we do? We should sing. Why? Because it is a means of God's grace. It is a means of God demonstrating His grace to us. While, while though my joys and comforts, there's a, there's a song that says, How can I help but sing? That says this, While, through, while, 
Well, though my joys and comforts die, I know my Savior lives. While through the darkness, though the get, darkness gathers round, songs in the night he gives. No storm can shake my innermost calm while to that refuge clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Has God done anything for you? Has God done anything for me? Let's sing. Let's sing his praises to us. Sing reminding yourself of his grace. It is a means by which God demonstrates his grace to us. Singing is necessary. Let us sing as unto the Lord. Let's pray. Let me call our attention to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. I may have mentioned this morning, but I'll mention again tonight. I was in studying these. I told my wife, it may have been today, I I told her, I said, it's almost as if John and Paul were in agreement. And there's certain things we're going to see from this scripture that we saw this morning. Uh, Why? Because it's one story. Amen. One story about one God saving one people, His people. And what a blessing. We'll we'll begin reading in verse number 1. We'll kind of recap just real quickly verse number 1 through verse number 3. But I want us to read uh, verse number 1. We'll go down through verse number 17. Uh, We're only going to cover up to verse number 13, but we'll go ahead and read all the way down to 17. The Bible said, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And Sosanes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is in Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, which are all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul begins, that was kind of an introduction, now Paul begins with his letter. He said, I thank my God always on your behalf, for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, warning are waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you are called 
unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but yet that ye perfectly join together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Then he says here in verse number 11, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? Then he goes on to explain further. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Caiaphas and Gaius, lest any should say that I was baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Let's pray. Father, again, we do pray that you would shine a light upon your scripture. I pray that we could glean those things that you would have us to glean from it this evening. Give us a clear understanding of where Paul's writing and to whom he's writing and to what situation he's writing into. Lord, we pray that you give us that understanding so that we could clearly get what Paul is trying to give to the church. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We mentioned last week, first of all, Paul tells us even in this scripture, Paul had been at Corinth. Um, this is probably two years prior to his going there. And Paul spent some 18 months in Corinth planting the churches, seeing people saved, seeing them begin to follow God. And then he had to go away, and now he's receiving letters from those that are at Corinth. I told my wife it's kind of... Uh, Kind of comical when I read verse number 11 where he said, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them that are of the house of Chloe. Uh, if, you, if you wanted to tell Paul something in secret, don't write it to him because he's going he's gonna to tell him where he got it. I thought, I told my wife, I said, I, Chloe's house was tattletales. <laughs> They wrote back. Uh, they wrote back telling Paul some things, but rightly so. Uh, there were things that were happening, things that were going on. Understand the situation Corinth is in. 
and we talked about last week we tried to lay some some definite groundwork last week and if uh, if you haven't didn't weren't here if you want to go back and listen to the podcast there's a lot of groundwork laid as to where Corinth is where it's located how strategic it is and and what kind of city it actually was uh, Corinth would have been something along the lines of our Las Vegas or New York, if you will. There was a lot that was going on. Corinth was between two ports. It was the only landmass between those two ports. And for those ships to sail down around that peninsula was very difficult, especially during the winter months. So they would pull into one port, they would offload, they would carry it land, carried across the land to the other port, put it on that, and then it would go to where it was going. All of the trade that went on between Italy and Asia was done through Corinth. So there were ships coming in and out constantly. It was a, it was a, a, a port town, if you will. Well, if it's a port town, what kind of clientele is coming into that port town? Those that are doing trade, which are businessmen, that are greatly concerned about the finances, that are greatly concerned about those types of things. And on the other hand, you've got those sailors that have been out on those ships all this time. With that being said, there was a lot of religion that was brought into Corinth. There were all kinds of temples. There were all kinds of gods. And just laying groundwork as we did last week, there were, there were things that were done in what was called temples that were built in Corinth that were, uh, were degradating. They were, they were sinful. There were things that were taking place that ought not have been taking place. And that is the... That is the mentality that Paul comes into in Corinth. But there are people that hear him. There are people that hear him about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They get saved. Paul founds a church there. Paul has to leave and he doesn't leave for a long period of time. And there's a lot of that, a lot of that goings on that was happening that is creeping back into the churches. We're going to see some of it as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to see some of, we're going to see some dreadful things that were taking place within the congregation of those at Corinth. Part of that was because they were saved out of that culture. You and I that are saved by the grace of God, each one of us have been saved out of some kind of culture. Whatever culture that may be, we were saved out of a particular culture. And when God begins to show us truth, there, there is baggage that we carry with us. If we begin to see some, some certain truths from the Word of God that maybe we had not seen for a long time in our life, we carry even more religious baggage with us. So in order for us to 
in order for us to receive the truths of the Word of God, a lot of times we have to unpack a lot of baggage to be able to allow the, the truth that we see in the Word of God to saturate us. Because we're, we're so full of ourselves. We're so full of our religion. We're so full of our sinfulness. We're so full of all these other things. And that's what Paul was coming into. That's what was happening. That's what was taking place. So Paul starts out this letter. Remember, Paul didn't spend a great deal of time in a great deal of places, but Paul had spent almost 18 months in the town of Corinth. There were people there that within the 18 months, Paul had formed some friendships. But Paul does not start out this letter and say, Paul, your brother in Christ. Paul starts out this letter because of the, he knows the things that he's going to have to deal with in writing this letter because of some of the questions that have been sent to him. Some of the things that have been sent, even what we see in verse number 11 where Chloe's family was, was telling on some people. So he's hearing about these things. So Paul starts out this letter saying, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want to, at the very beginning, Paul is saying, I want to, at the very beginning, set down my credentials. I'm not writing to you as a friend. And the reason that I'm not particularly writing to you as a friend, although there are some things that Paul is going to say and has even said in what we've read tonight that are friendly statements, Paul is making those, but Paul is saying there, I want you to understand that my writing to you is to set some things in order. Because I hear that there's some things going on that shouldn't be happening. So Paul comes down to verse number four, and he does make some of those friendly statements. He, he, he says early on, this is my credentials. This is who I am. I am the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm writing this in that authority. Basically what Paul is saying is hear what I'm telling you but as if you're hearing it from Christ because I'm his apostle. He said, I want you to understand that I'm writing on your behalf. He said here in verse number four, he said, I thank my God always on your behalf. What does he thank God for on their behalf? He says, I thank God on your behalf for the grace of God. Number one, I am thankful for the grace of God on your behalf. God has bestowed his grace upon you. God has demonstrated his grace to you. And you're, you're evident in that that you're making some efforts to follow Christ. He said, I do thank God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which was given you by Jesus Christ. Again, he is telling them where that grace of God came from. That grace of God didn't come from Paul. That grace of God came from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm thankful not only for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. He said, I'm also thankful that in everything ye are enriched. How? By Christ. 
by Him. I thank God that you have seen the grace of God. I thank God that the grace of God has been revealed to you. And I thank God that not only that the grace of God has been revealed to you, but because the grace of God has been revealed to you, you have been enriched by Him. You've been enriched by Christ. Could we not say the same thing about ourselves? God has revealed to us the grace of God. If we're saved by His grace, God has revealed His grace to us. Else we would not be saved. We would still be in our sins. God revealed His grace. Nobody else did. Paul didn't reveal the grace of God. Jesus Christ revealed the grace of God. The same way in our life. We find here He says not only that they were given the grace of God, but that they were enriched by Christ. How were they enriched by Christ? If they've been given the grace of God, and because of being given the grace of God, they've been enriched by Jesus Christ, how were they enriched? He tells them. He said that you were enriched in all utterance. Paul said said your speech changed. You started talking about the things of God. You started discussing the grace of God. You started discussing the fact of what God's grace had done for you. They had, and Paul tells us that as we get on down through here, Paul tells us about that fellowship that they had in the Lord Jesus Christ that we talked about this morning. He is telling them that they've been enriched and that God has... God has greatly enriched them in what? He's enriched them in all utterance and in all knowledge. He said the things that you now know about Christ, you now know about Christ because Christ revealed them to you. We, some of us read more than others. Some of us listen to things more than others. Some of us hear preaching. But whatever means it is, God gives us those things and allows us to gain knowledge. That knowledge is given to us not by what we read, not by what we heard, but it is given to us by the enrichment of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times have you read something that you didn't understand? Didn't matter how many times you read it, you just didn't understand it. I can attest to that probably way more than anybody else. But I'm, I'm, so what I'm saying tonight is this. God had given them utterance and He had given them all knowledge in what they had heard and what they had been enriched in in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that all of this was done even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. He said, there are some of you that I am writing to that I am convinced you're saved. I am convinced you know God. There are some of you that we're going to find out that are doing some of the things that they were doing, but Paul's saying in, in verse number In verse number 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. 
How did that happen? That happened because Christ had made a difference in their life. Just like He made a difference in your life and just like He made a difference in my life. We come to verse number 7. Christ has been confirmed in them. Why was Christ confirmed in them? So that ye come behind in no gift. He's saying that you, you, may, you may struggle in this area and you may struggle in that one, but you're, you have the same gifts available to you in Christ that everyone else does. God is not withholding from us. He said, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now they're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, And what's going to happen at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Look at what he says in verse number 8. Who shall also confirm you unto the end? We know the verse. That which he hath begun in you, he will also perform until the end, until that day. Paul said, I am... I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What's he talking about? He's talking about the same thing he's saying here. Who shall also confirm you unto the end. What is he saying? That ye may be blameless. Let me ask you something this evening. Are any of us blameless? Within ourselves, we're not blameless. But in Christ, we are. God does not regard our sin against us when we're in Christ. He doesn't. Because Christ took all of that. So he's saying here at the end that ye may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, all of this is happening because number nine, in verse number nine, he said, because God is faithful. This is not happening because you're faithful, because I've got letters from Chloe's house that says you're not faithful. I know you're not because there are people telling me you're not. I can tell you I'm not. And you don't have to look far to see that I am not. Hang around me for a day. You'll find out I'm a sinner just like you are. And I know from what the Word of God says, you're a sinner just like I am. We, we fail God. We, we talked about, I think even this morning, what is, what is failing God? It's coming short of His glory. None of us have attained the glory of God. We're not going to. There's not going to be any given day in our life when we have attain the glory of God. We're going to come short of the glory of God until that day. But Paul tells us here, although all of these things are happening and, and although I've walked down through all of this, he said all of this is possible because God is faithful. By whom ye were called. Where were you called? Paul tells us where we were called. Same place John told us this morning that we were called. We were called 
unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I mentioned this morning, and I'll mention again this evening, our fellowship is in Christ. We all walk different walks of life. We do different things. What brought us together tonight is the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Together around God's word to know more of the Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't come together tonight to find ball statistics. We didn't find, come together tonight to try and figure out who won the races. We didn't get together tonight to try to figure out who's going to win a political race or who's going to have this office or that office. We didn't come together for that. We came together under and in the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our reasoning for being here. All of that is because God is faithful. And then he tells us here in verse number 10, he said, now, now that I've told you all of this, now that I've mentioned this to you, he said, now, I beg you. That's what he says. Basically, he said, I beseech you. That word beseech means to beg, to implore. He said, I beg you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all, all of you. He said, this is what I want you to do. He said, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you. Church splits are terrible. They're probably the worst thing in the world because there's really nothing ever good comes from them. But even worse than that is factions within the church. When there are divisions among the believers, that's what Paul's writing to them about. That's what has been written to him and told to him that's going on. There is factions. There's there's divisions. There's differences. They're not coming together for one purpose and coming together around the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren. These are saved folks. He's not writing to the unsaved. He's called them brethren. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. How are you going to do that? It's all right here. It's, it's, it's not preaching our whims. It's not, it's not preaching our ideology. It's not preaching our opinions. It's not preaching our theology, but it is preaching what the Word of God says. Would you agree with me that we just walked down through this passage of Scripture 
and saw exactly what Paul is saying up to this point? Wasn't what I was trying to tell you to. It's what Paul is saying to this point. Every one of these things, he made those statements and he gave the reason for the statements that he made. He said that there be no division among you that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now we're going to see what Paul has to say. He said, that's what I want you to do. But he said, I have heard. Here come Chloe. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren. <coughs> Paul's not, that, there, there's, no, <laughs> there's no doubt to who's he's ta- who he's talking to. He said, for it hath been declared unto me for you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And he goes on to explain what those contentions are. Now, now this I say, that in every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. It's almost, maybe we could pick up on it better if we looked at it this way. There's a certain... There's a certain group teaching a certain thing over here, and there's a certain group teaching a certain thing over here, and there's a certain group teaching a certain thing over here, and a certain group teaching a certain thing over here, and those teachers of that group would have been Paul and Cephas and Caiaphas and, 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 and supposedly Christ. And, and they're saying, you know... I'm 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 leaning more toward what Paul was saying or I'm leaning more toward what Cephas was saying or I'm leaning more toward Apollos and all of that brought factions in amongst the people and it caused divisions and Paul goes on in verse number 13 he puts it this way he said is Christ divided? What does Paul... We, we know because we've read through some of the book. We know that there's a later point in chapter number 12 where Paul's going to talk to us about the body of Christ. And what, Paul, what is Paul going to tell us about the body of Christ? He said the body of Christ is many members and all the members of that one body being many, so also is the body of Christ. And God hath placed them in the body as it hath pleased him. That's what Paul tells us. If all were an eye, then where's the smelling? If all were a nose, where's the seeing? If all were a hand, where's the walking? If all were a foot, where is the feeling? God placed us in the body as it has pleased him. And God wants no divisions in the body of Christ. Understand, when there are factions in a church, 
When there were factions in this church, it divided the body of Christ. It's not just different ideas. It is dividing the body of Christ because we are all members of the body of Christ, are we not? We're in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our identity. Paul tells us that in the book of Ephesians. He explains to us that our identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're members in particular. God has a certain thing for each of us to do. And and we function in that body. And when there are divisions, the body can't function like it should. That's the reason... That unless there's heresy, unless there's some grave misunderstanding of doctrine, it does not matter to me what goes on in a church down the road. What matters to me is what we're preaching here. What matters to me is that we're looking at the Word of God here. I don't have time to set everyone else straight when I'm busy studying the Word of God to find out what God has to say for Gospel Way Baptist Church. There was divisions. He says here, is Christ divided? Answer the question. Is Christ divided? Christ is not divided. The body of Christ, its members may divide, but Christ is not divided. Christ knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's taking place. It has not taken Christ by surprise. He knows what's going on, and He knows where He's taking His body. Christ is not divided. He also makes the statement here, and he's, He's talking about these divisions. He said, well, is Christ divided? No, He's not divided. Was Paul crucified for you? Paul Paul is basically saying, how foolish are you? Don't we sing a song that says, who hath given counsel to God? Which Which one of us thinks that we're at such a stage that we can give counsel to God? Who of us are at such a stage in our life that we think we could be crucified for someone else? Paul is saying, get off the high horses. There's only one place to look, and that's to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul's going to go on and and talk here about he's glad that he baptized none of them. I don't know. I don't know how indignant Paul is when he's writing this, but there seems to be some indignation coming out. Why? Because while he was there, he knows what he preached to him. What did he preach to him? He preached the unity of Christ. He preached the fellowship of Christ. He preached those same things that John was talking about this morning. He preached those same. He was telling them that they're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, there should be no divisions among us. There is no wonder 
that the word of God said how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's pleasant. Because for us to dwell together in unity, we're not going to unify around the wrong thing. The only thing that's going to bring unity to us is Christ. That's the only central thing that can bring all of us together. That's the only central thing that you and I have to fellowship in. I love my wife tonight and my wife loves me. And it is evident because we've lived together for 39 years now. She's not dead, nor am I. Got a little sick, but I was over to, able to overcome the poisoning. But no, what, what are you saying? I'm saying we love one another, but do you know where our real unity is? In Christ. We unify around our children. But that is not our true, genuine, central point of unification. Our central point of unification is Christ. Whether it is in the family, whether it is in the relationship of of father and children, mother and children, siblings, whatever that is in, even if it's in the church, if it's in, in, in whatever relationship, whether it's a work relationship, our our central point of unity is nothing other than Christ. That is the only thing that will unify us and bring us together completely. Because everything else, we're going to have different opinions on. My wife and I don't differ often because she knows I'm right. But what I'm saying is we all differ. We have different opinions. Yeah. I mean, we got that. You, you know, some people. If I, if you were to tell them that that skirt around that table back there is black, they're going to tell you it's blue. Some people are going to fight against everything. Yeah, right. But our true unifying fellowship is in the Lord Jesus Christ, right. and that's what Paul's trying to get them to see. He said, "He said Christ is not divided." And Paul was not crucified for you. Nor did any of these other guys do anything of eternal value for you. Were they mentors? Maybe so. Did you gain some knowledge from them? Maybe so. But who gave you that knowledge? It wasn't just because of the words they spake. It was because of the clarity that Christ brought to you from what they spake. It's, it's all centered around Christ. And that's what Paul was trying to get them to see. He, he mentioned here, he said, some were named, uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, who were we instructed to be baptized in the name of? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Got nothing to do with Paul. Got nothing to do with gospel way. Got nothing to do. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And Paul was drawing their attention to that. And that's the reason he made the statement, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Caiaphas and Gaius, lest any of you should say that I was baptized in my own name. 
And Paul walks on down through there, and we're going to look at some of that as we get into the rest of this. But understanding where Paul's at tonight. Paul's writing to a church that is in the middle of a culture that is a divided culture. So it's it, it's easy to understand that divisions come in among them because they lived in a divided culture. That culture was divided religiously, it was divided economically, it was divided politically, it was divided in every way it could be divided. So it's not a strange thing that this should happen. Paul is just drawing them back to where that unification is. And that's what he's going to do over and over as we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. I mentioned last week, we, we are so quick to call this the worldliest church. But understand their background. I wouldn't point a finger too hard because of the culture they lived in. Paul is pulling them back and letting them understand that the only unifying factor they have is the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That common knowledge, that common bond that we have in Christ. That same common knowledge, that same common bond that you and I have in Christ. Let's pray.